Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to what's probably going to end up being an aborted episode of The Long Road to Ruin. Uh, we were supposed to do the Mexico trilogy tonight. That, so of course, was finished with it. I'll pay <laughs> that, of course, was the Juno reactor, which is, that is what I would still like going. Hang on one second. Help me keep the balance by pulling the trigger. Do you want me to shoot the cook? No, I'll shoot the cook. My car's parked out back anyway. Yeah, that always gets me. Okay, um, so we were having a bit of technical difficulties tonight. Um, 
so uh, you'll have to excuse the sort of long, odd intro there. Uh, we were supposed to be doing, uh, Sean and I were supposed to be doing the Mexico Trilogy, or Robert Rodriguez's Mexico Trilogy, El Mariachi, Desperado, and of course that last little bit there that you heard was Johnny Depp and Antonio Banderas from Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But um, we may actually be able to get this thing off the ground here after sort of a messed up beginning. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, Blog Talk Radio is having all kinds of problems tonight. But uh, bear with us here. Sean, are you there? Fuck you, running Blog Talk Radio. So help me, you dick with my show this time. And tech support, your mothers will weep for what I do to you. Yeah, what tech support? Because if you got tech support, then you're further ahead than I was. No, no. You know what? Actually... Tonight, it's not just Blog Talk Radio, uh, and maybe a couple of other people. Up, yeah, a couple of other people out there have experienced this. Um, gee, Verizon, you know, my little droid was working fine before your update picked with it. <laughs> yeah, so far it's 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 okay. I haven't had any experience. I haven't had any bad experiences with whatever they're calling this one. The last one was Ice Cream Sandwich. I think this one is Ghost in the Machine. I'm not sure what it's called. What what is the deal with naming it after candies and sweet confections? Well, you know, uh Apple does animals, cats, you know, leopard, snow leopard, tabby cat, uh you know, whatever. Yeah, just mountain lion. So I guess you know, to to differentiate themselves from Apple products, they they go with a slightly, you know, more appealing thing. And who doesn't like an ice cream sandwich really other than me? What if I want turkey sandwich? Sean, what I'm going to advise, I'm going to advise two things. One, I'm going to advise that you start your own telecom company, sell your own hardware, and when you do software updates, you can name it Ham Sandwich, Turkey Sandwich. I would actually, I would actually use your product if you had an update that was called Ham Sandwich. The other thing I'm going to suggest is that we actually talk about these fucking movies. Yes, by all means, let's, because, hey, kids, guess what? Mark hasn't yet learned the lesson of you. Don't go and give Sean ideas. <laughs> now, why do you say that, Sean? Because Sean sometimes can't tell a good one from a bad one, and sometimes Sean sees a bad one, and Sean just doesn't care. Uh, aside from letting Jeff Harris on the show, which was a bad idea, what are you referring to? <laughs> oh God! I've I've done many I've done many bad, ill-advised things in my life. Some of them I even kept their phone numbers. Hey Um But yeah, uh, we'll we'll not go into Jeffrey Harris, who shall probably not be allowed back on the show again. Well, he keeps insulting me for no apparent reason. He won't. But well, right. when, when Jeffrey can learn to converse like a big boy, we'll let him back on, back on the show. Well, that sounds ducky. But um, no, this was your suggestion, and I actually did want to start with. Let, let me let, let, let's actually do a proper introduction here. Hello, this is the Long Road to Ruin. I am, of course, the Mandate Reporter, Mr. Mark Rattledge, and tonight my co-host and I, Mr. Sean Comer, will be discussing at length for the next little less than ninety minutes or so the uh, seminal stylized action um, action and violence movies that took place in Mexico. Robert Rodriguez's uh, big big introduction to the world, really. El Mariachi, Desperado, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Now, Sean, this was... Now, I love these movies, especially Desperado. 
Um, before I knew anything about Robert Rodriguez or El Mariachi or anything else like that, I, I don't remember why I was turned on to Desperado, probably because Quentin Tarantino was in it, and at the time I was just a whore for anything Tarantino. Um, but I totally fell in love with this movie, and not just because I'm, I, you know, I dig Mexican culture, which, by the way, I'm back from my cruise, and as I've told everybody and their mother at this point, if you happen to be in Cozumel, you want to go to the Ocean Beach Resort. Yes, Ocean Beach. It's redundant, but never mind all that. You want to go to the Ocean Beach Resort, pay your $60, and drink yourself stupid and eat yourself silly. Okay? You can have all the liquor and all the food you want, all the Mexican food you want, for sixty bucks, and you can just hang out on the beach all day and ply yourselves with uh, liquor and liquor and burritos. It's fantastic. For, for, so I, for like the for like the cost of a PlayStation Three game. Yeah, literally. I mean, you know, we had to bail out of there a little early to get back on the boat and kind of dodge the college girls, which were um, trying to advise my toddler to not make sa- the same bad decisions that they were making. But had we wanted to be there all night, oh my god, I might still be there. <laughs> In any case, since I tend to fetishize Mexican culture, and I like, you know, stylized action movies, and I like Quentin Tarantino, and I think Selma Hayek is what God intended when he created Eve, though people tend to argue with me, and I say those people are wrong. It's the same thing. The same people that say that New Yorkers have an accent. We don't have an accent. This is how God talks. Now listen. Uh, I absolutely loved Desperado. Uh, found out about El Mariachi afterwards, and then, of course, years later, 2003, he finished the whole thing with Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And as much as I love these movies, I hadn't thought to talk about them. But you did, Sean. You did. This was your idea, and I want you to tell me why. Why tonight are we discussing the Mexico trilogy? Well, Mark, we're talking about this for a couple of reasons. Uh, yes, uh, one very obvious reason is the fact that, in my own opinion, Salma Hayek and Christina Hendricks um, just might be the two most concrete pieces of proof of a higher being. <laughs> uh, but more to the point of this podcast is the fact that, for one thing, we spent the last the last two shows straight talking about some fairly bad movies. Uh, we first had two shows four weeks ago, uh, my going off on an absolute aneurysm-inducing tangent about the last two Paranormal Activity movies. Then the last time out, um, we spent another nearly two hours talking about the many, many various things that were respectively wrong with Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith. And And we're all idiots. And I just decided at some point, you know... Maybe just for for one show, maybe for the last show for a little while, I would like to just spend this time talking about a franchise that never really went wrong. The 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 very example of knowing when to walk away from the table, knowing exactly when to end a saga and what note to end it on. And really, that is what this is. This is. So I was going to say, the, the Mexico trilogy upon review is really an example of what a trilogy should be. Start small, get bigger, and huge. Without getting overly You can get somewhat silly. You know, it's okay to go somewhat silly in your grand conclusion, because that's what you want to do. You always want to top the thing before it. 
but you have to be careful that you don't go into self-parody route. And that's why, you know, I was kind of glad you picked this one, though I hadn't thought about it, because the the show is called Long Road to Ruin, and he never ruined it. You know, I I said I had some problems with Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and I kind of goofed on it offline about, uh, about what my issues were. But ultimately... It's a perfect, it's an example, folks. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, if you want to know what Mark and Sean, or at least myself, I don't want to speak for you, think is a perfect example of what a trilogy should be, it's the Mexico trilogy. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, i got a lot more reasons why I love this that are going to come out as we talk about the podcast. A lot of them have to do with the fact that this was, these were the three movies that taught me the deep, abiding respect, not just as a fan of Robert Rodriguez's movies, but it, it made him somebody that I admire as somebody who is who also makes his money in a somewhat creative avenue. In that I'm, for those of you who don't know um, what pays my bills, is I am a web content writer. Um, before that, I was a journalist. In between, I've kind of always been a blogger. I'm now a podcast host. And it was really once I dug into these three movies, and particularly into the really entertaining, eye-opening, very warm and personable commentary tracks on the DVDs, that I really kind of came to understand Robert personally and to see how he has set himself apart from a lot of other directors in that the movies he's made may not necessarily stand up as high cinematic art in the way people would hold up the works of uh, Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, just name the three modern day names that would come to mind. But the thing you really have to appreciate about Robert is the fact that to, to begin with, he makes movies based on what he has available, not based on a wish list, not what he can get, what, not what he thinks he can get, but what he knows he has right at his fingertips. And he's hands-on with every aspect of it, so that that way, not so much to be a control freak, but so that every movie is going to be his vision and can kind of be made within that very industrious, frugal, inventive model of his. And it's why, say what you will maybe about whether or not you might like some of his movies, but his movies almost always make money. They're almost always hits at the box office and as rentals, whether he's producing them or directing them. And that speaks to really how, in my opinion, how underappreciated I think he is. And he's also a guy that is doing this not necessarily because he's an artist, but just because, not just deep down, but up on the surface, he's still just that kid that loves the movies. One of the things that jumped out at me, um, I didn't want listen to the commentary tracks for parts two and three, but I did, um, it's a funny story about that, I rented the uh, El Mariachi and Desperado from Netflix, and they, they, they send them out as um, dual discs, you know, one on each side of the disc. Mm, and yeah, I yeah. and I watched it while we were on our cruise on uh, my father-in-law's portable DVD player, and for whatever reason I couldn't get the commentary track to turn off on El Mariachi. 
So I was forced to listen to it, which is not the way I like to watch movies. I don't necessarily listen to a lot of the commentary track because I, I get driven up the wall by some of these directors trying to come up with things to say, just as a side thing. I once listened to the commentary track when I was really into doing this and really into like studying film. Uh, the commentary track for the Kentucky Fried movie, and after about a minute or so of this, I hear that one of the one of the directors say, uh, "You know, after about a minute of this, we're already bored." And I'm like, "Why am I subjecting myself to this?" Then? Well, well, well no, no, wait a second. Okay, yeah, you were listening to, to the commentary track for Kentucky Fried movie, but in, in my opinion, of all the DVDs that I've watched, um, there are two directors for whom, if I'm watching a movie they've made, I have to go. I have to go and listen to their commentary immediately after I watch it the first time through. And those are Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith. Sure. And 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 look, to be fair, that's where I was going with this. Back then, it kind of turned me off to all commentary tracks. <laughs> Having listened to Robert Rodriguez, I actually really learned a lot. And I love what he says in that right at the beginning of El Mariachi. He, said, he, see, he acknowledges the fact that a lot of people, like, they do these commentary tracks sort of at gunpoint, it would appear, and they, they, there's long stretches of silence um, where they, they just don't know what to say, apparently. And he acknowledged that, and he said, you know, I want to try to teach people something about filmmaking through the use of this commentary track. And I'll tell you what, as somebody who took um, screenwriting classes in college and for, for a while there, you know, before I became the mandated reporter, uh, who's frankly mortified, I was uh, a wannabe screenwriter. I took a lot of these kinds of classes when I was in college, 20 million years ago and I'll tell you what if I were to ever go back and like teach a film class Citizen Kane Clerks and El Mariachi you have to watch all three of those movies yeah. <laughs> in order to pass my in order to pass Dr. Radelidge's film class you have to watch this because El Mariachi and that's where I really want to start is a great lesson in how to make a film without uh, money <laughs> without you know, without a huge budget, um, it's and he makes a point of saying that to what you were saying before. Robert Rodriguez says, "Look, you've only got X amount of money to make this thing. You don't want to waste shots. You don't want to waste time, and you want to try to tell a story um, with the materials you have on hand." El Mediachi is a study in, in, in film minimalism, but contrary to what a lot of what you see today in film. El Mariachi is, is just—it's is, really is a perfect story, and it, it's gripping—it's a gripping tale of what happens to this poor schlub, without having to go crazy. Instead of distracting you with giant talking rabbits and you know and, and hip hop talking robots and things that go kabooey in the night, you just have a simple story about a mariachi who's trying to find work and gets caught up in a, um, uh, what you call him, um, da. Mistaken identity, uh, mistaken identity issue, and it's fun, and and you feel, and you learn more about this guy in this almost ninety minutes of footage than you do in most movies written today, and that's probably why it's up there as one of my favorites, and is a part and what makes this trilogy one of my favorites to watch. And it's really stood up against the test of time so far. I mean, I, 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 in like five, in a couple of years, I'll probably sit back and watch El Mariachi again, and, and I'll see something I didn't see before. Right. Well, and and we must we must note a couple things. First off, yeah, I believe the budget for this, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because you've listened to the commentary more recently than I have. Um, I believe the budget was somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty to sixty-four thousand dollars. That Robert and his Friend, right-hand man, and co-star 
El Mariachi was 7,000. Sorry, I should say, uh, Carlos Gallardo. Wait, wait, stop for a second. El Mariachi was shot for $7,000. 7,000. 730. Yes, you're you're right. It was 7,000. I don't know why 64,000 was sticking in my head. (laughs) It's like 64,000. What the hell of a movie? Yeah. (laughs) Well... Yeah, considering it was sixty four thousand from shot in Mexico, yeah, it would be. Um yeah, I mean this so this was raised this movie was made on a four figure budget that was raised by a combination of Robert Rodriguez and star Carlos Gallardo, uh, who was just Robert's friend and kind of creative right hand man. Um and they recruited friends, they recruited bystanders uh, they used whatever vehicles and houses they could get people to get people to they lend them. They shot it like porno. If you know anything yeah, about, they, they did. They they shot it like porno. We want yeah. to use your house. Fine. I want to be in the movie. And that's how they that's how they did this thing. Yeah, that that was how they cast a lot of the extras in it. Um, and yeah, that that's the other thing that's worth noting is the fact that um, a lot of people who have never heard of this movie should realize that. Yes, Antonio Banderas has only played El Mariachi in two of the movies. Um, in this one, it is a completely different guy. Although we'll get to we'll get to one of my fa- one of my favorite things about Desperado involving he and Antonio when we come to that movie. But um, yeah, it's very much it was very much a guerrilla made film, but it told a good, effective story. The way they shot the action worked. It was simple, but it worked. Um, and what I like about it is the fact that, as with a lot of things Robert Rodriguez does, is it has a lot of old-fashioned, vintage authenticity that you don't see in movies very much anymore unless it's being made by, well, let's face it, unless we're talking about The Expendables because that was a movie that Sylvester Stallone made on a much, much bigger budget specifically to bring back that kind of hands-on, authentic feeling action. But in this, the difference is it is not sold on the shootouts. Jeffrey, listen to this very, very carefully, because chances are I am going to repeat it. It's not sold on the shootouts. And Columbia Pictures paid a killing for this on the festival circuit and proceeded to give this director years before Spy Kids or Grindhouse or even Sin City was a glint in his eye millions of dollars to make a sequel, which, yes, had more shootouts. But it also told a great dialogue and character-driven story that was held together by arguably what might just be the best performance of Antonio Banderas' career. Let, let me stop you there, Sean, because you're alluding to a conversation that was held offline. And I don't want to go go on and continue to, to bury certain people. That's what sets me apart from them. But I'm, I'm, I want to talk a little bit about this because it's because it really fits in line with this particular movie. There is a difference between an action movie that is compelling, that has a, that has a um, a story that is the bedrock of the thing, and you know, and, and a character that you can follow and sympathize with, and a, a hero who is compelling, someone you can root for, 
and you pepper that with action, with action that makes sense, and you can go silly if you want to go silly, but it, it's not so silly that it's distracting from what is a solid plot. And essentially, The Phantom Menace, you know, something along those lines, which is a series of action sequences strung together by the thinnest of plots, if that's what you want to call it. The, the latter is schlock. The former is a movie. Okay, the former is, you know, whatever genre we're talking about. In this, in this particular case, we're talking about action. But this could have also been considered a drama. You know, there, there was a lot of uh, dr- uh, drama elements to it. There's, you know, h- him trying to figure out why these people are after him and uh, the tension that builds up of him hiding from them and then the deal with the, with the bartender girl who becomes the love of his life and all of that. You know, and the tragic ending, which we which we'll talk to and we'll talk talk about in a little bit, um, which then leads to Desperado. But that that is something that I want to make clear in arguments that I have with people all of the time. If you're watching a movie, let's say Transformers, for example, Transformers is essentially a lot of action sequences strung together by a very thin plot for the purposes of you know trying to construct a movie out of lots of battle sequences. Okay, well, that's schlock, it- folks. In Transformers' case, though, what we have to remember is, in a way, we really should tailor our expectations of that accordingly because the whole original point behind the Transformers franchise way back in the day was simply to be toyetic. I was going to say, to sell toys. Yeah, but the thing of it is, is that the Transformers cartoon movie had a better plot line than that. So, so whatever whatever movie you want to come up with today, um, you know, we were talking about, like, uh, the Hulk movies and the Avengers and stuff like that. Um, I like schlock, but let's call it for what it is. It's schlock versus a movie like El Mariachi. Um, there's another one that I had that was a good example of this. Um, but, you know, movies that have a very, very strong plot and very well-rounded characters that you're, you know, you're peppering with action to kind of move the, the story forward. And I, really, and I want to make sure I say that out loud, because sometimes I get into these arguments with with people, and they can't seem to, they call themselves film people, but they can't seem to tell the difference between schlock and a, an action movie. There's a difference, huge difference. Right, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with with making with making an action movie. Um, what... But an action movie doesn't have to be schlock either. Well, and, and well okay. Uh, allow me, allow me to draw uh, a wrestling comparison, which we've done a few Lord times. Lord of the Rings. That's what I was. Sorry, I, sorry. Last time I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> but Lord of the Rings. That was the movie that I was thinking of. There was a ton of battle sequences in that movie. Lots of action, but you had a rock solid story and rock solid characters carrying you through, and there was right. action peppered throughout. Well, and the battles were climaxes to the plots of those movies. Right. They were also instrumental in moving the plot forward. Yes. They weren't there just for the sake of, of oh, well, it's been, a whole, it's been a whole however many minutes since Aragorn has slain an orc. <laughs> we better throw a battle scene in there. No, uh, they were in there, and they had the subtext of the, the side stories to them of... Nor was, it, nor was it a special effects reel. You know, the difference right. between something like Return of the King and The Phantom Menace is they used CGI effectively to create these grand battle sequences that were essential to the plot line, not an example of, look what I can do with a computer. Right, right. But, but damn it, you done went and distract me. The point I was getting to is a late friend of mine who was also a, who was also a huge wrestling fan, Steve Black, God rest his soul, 
he always had a saying about what in wrestling are known as spot fests. For those of you who have not watched much wrestling, when we refer to a spot fest, we refer to something that is nothing but a bunch of aerial maneuvers that don't try to tell a story, um, weapon spots, bloodshed, chairs to the head, things like that. He always used to say, if you're going to do a spot fest, do a fucking spot fest. Don't do it halfway. But just let it just be what it is. Um, and really, when it comes to action movies, there are times when, there, when there's no problem with that. There are times when you just go into a movie, you know what you're expecting, and that movie delivers it. That was really what the glory days of action movies were. Back in the back in the days when Schwarzenegger and Stallone were the kings of the were the kings of the mountain. Um they just really Jeremy, I have to tell you sorry, friend of mine that I have to rem- I'm co hosting a podcast. Keep it on my call. Um anyway, you know it's it's okay for it to just to just kind of be what it is, but you better sure. really make something spectacular to make it satisfying. Something like, um, okay, as long as we're talking about Robert Rodriguez movies, um, Machete. Um, okay, that just was what it was. It was a gritty, old-school action movie. Um, both the Grindhouse features, Death Proof and Planet Terror. They, they didn't try to be anything that they weren't, you got to be They were owed. For that. They, were yeah. owed. They, they, they were owed to the old B movie reels that we that uh, that you and Jeremy have well, you have alluded to on your bad movie review. Right. Or, or or for that or for that matter, hey, Predator. Predator just is what it is. It's it's just a sim- it's just a simple little action movie. Um. But even those, even those movies try to work at least a little bit of character into it. Just a little bit. They, they have a way of kind of manipulating tension and making okay. sure they're build up to the action. So let, let's draw this. Let, let's weave this back into El Mariachi for this for the sake of time here. Why do we sure. care about the Mariachi when we meet the Mariachi? And this is, as you know, Long Road to Rome is not a plot by point synopsis of, the, of a movie. We talk about elements. So, um, in this particular case, characterization is important, and boy, is it a lost art in Hollywood today. But why do we care about the uh, about Mariachi? Because here, when we meet him, he is he is a simple guy. He's a musician who's down on his luck and out of work, and he comes into a small town, a border town, looking for work, and that's it. That's his motivation for being there. Jesus Christ! You don't need to create a backstory. You don't need to you know create you know he 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 doesn't need to have microorganisms guiding his fate or, or or some sort of prophecy. He's a god. Looking for work. This is what this is to, what makes today different than any other day. Screenwriting 101. At the same time that he enters this town looking for work, there's an escaped con who is at war with the local Mexican mafia, and he's carrying a guitar case. Yep. What is the mariachi carrying? A guitar case. One's got a guitar. One's got an arsenal. And voila. So why do we care about this guy, Sean? The reason we care about him is because, really, it's not that unbelievable. It's it's not that hard to 
that hard to imagine. Um, he's not somebody – he's kind of got that same kind of appeal as an action hero, as it were, and I hesitate to call Carlos Gallardo that with all due respect because he's not. Um, he's the unlikely action hero. He is the – I can't remember his name. I would call him John Wayne. But the Bruce Willis no, guy. Okay, wait, wait, hang on. You actually almost had the right comparison I was going to make there, but you got the last name wrong. John McClane. He, he's got yeah. that same kind of action hero appeal that Bruce Willis would have. Um, to to a somewhat other extent that, that someone like, say, Clint Eastwood would have. Um, he, he's an everyday guy who is just cast bewildered into a volatile situation. And you have to see how he's going to make his way out of it. Um, which is eminently more compelling. Which is eminently more compelling than a lot of action heroes. Who, you know, everybody's a you know everybody's a pirate, ninja, Navy SEAL, astronaut who can do everything. This is my father's favorite complaint about action movies. He's like, you know, I like James Bond and everything, but why does he have to be a ninja that can kill everybody? Why can't you know? It, by the way, and in the scene before, he was an old man who was falling apart at the seams. You know, it's more compelling, I think, for me to see a. a a, a duck out of water type character and thrust into a situation that he has to rise to a challenge. Folks, that's a movie arc. Okay, I don't know how, how else to say it. Yeah, and and really, I mean, it's and the amazing thing is is that as it goes along, yes, in in Desperado and then in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, he does indeed become an action hero he does indeed become a feared machine of vengeance. However, however, he remains a very flawed one. Um, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot about his, his evolution from Desperado, from El Mariachi to Desperado to once upon a time in Mexico that I want to talk about. But, um, just in keeping with, and getting to a close out of the discussion of El Mariachi, um, the thing that, like I said, makes him compelling is you're with this guy, you're with him, you're 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 with him in his situation where they they think he's um, he they think he's some sort of crazy uh, killer with a guitar case full of weapons, and he's not. He's a simple musician, and he's trying to get himself out of this situation. And along the way, he meets this woman. And I'll tell you, I, I didn't I didn't remember it until I saw it again. But the song he sings to her is awesome. Yeah, it's supposed to be like yeah. He's he's naked in the tub. She's got a she's got a knife to his nuts, (laughs) and she says, "Prove to me you're you're a musician. Play." And she and and he was like, "I don't know. What do you want me to say?" She's like, "Just play." And like you know, she jabs at him a little bit, and he's like, "No, no, 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 no." You know, (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) Again, they did so much with two people, a bathtub, and a knife. Yeah. Yeah, just because um, Robert, although he's he's not exactly an auteur, he knows how to pace things. He really know he he knows how to plan. He knows how he knows how to set up. Um, uh, when you um, when some of you, because I really believe some of you will hopefully be will be so intrigued by this discussion that you'll go out and actually watch these movies. When you inevitably go watch Desperado. Take the time to watch the featurette that just follows 
Robert Rodriguez and Antonio Banderas as they work together. Not Robert just telling Antonio what to do, mind you, but actually working together to plot out the second barroom shootout in that movie. It really is fascinating how they kind of think through and kind of act out and pantomime every every little detail. There is an art to action. There really is, and unfortunately, it's becoming kind of a lost art. So, as we follow the Mariachi from um, the mistake, you know, his mistaken identity issue to now, I just watched this, but I forget how we transition from. Um, I, I believe the the woman ends up in the hands of the villain, and they end up killing her, and he gets there too late in time to save her. So ultimately, the movie is a tragedy. I, I think I think I can explain this. Yeah, sure. Uh, what happens is um, the villain, the guy in the white suit, God, I'm trying to remember his name now, um, he has had a thing for this woman for a long time. And word has kind of gotten back to him. He's kind of he's figured out that after a while that she's kind of got a little bit of a thing for El Mariachi. And when he when El Mariachi shows up to rescue her, what happens is he kills her, he shoots he shoots him through the hand, and then inevitably, yes, I'm gonna spoil the ending a little bit a little bit here. So um and then he picks up a fall picks up a fallen gun and blasts him. And that's the end of the movie. Yes, the bad guy's been killed, but at the same time, El Mariachi didn't get didn't get the girl. His guitar playing days are seemingly pretty much over. Um In effect they've killed each other. It's it's the old Mexican standoff. You know, um what was once a down on his luck musician looking for work is dead. That guy is gone. And that's actually and that's actually the tone that carries you through Desperado, um, is he's desperately seeking to revive the old him, but he's got uh, sort of a Batman thing going on where he's just overcome with the desire for vengeance. And I love the thing with the hand, you know. He's been shot in the hand. The hand is absolutely he does not look Skywalker here, the hand is usable. But he doesn't feel like he doesn't feel like he's the musician Mariachi. He feels like he's the killer Mariachi. Well, no, I mean, I imagine a wound like a wound like that, the damage it would do to your hand. No, I think that would probably kill your guitar playing days um, because he plays guitar in the next two movies. Well, he does, but he does, but he doesn't. If you if you watch carefully. For one thing, the first time he plays... Well, okay, I guess in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, we'll have to get to that. Um, <laughs> he certainly doesn't play quite like he used to. Um, he plays a, he plays a little bit, but if you watch, it, it's really basic stuff that he's doing. Um, he he kind of makes a bit of a show in one scene of kind of noting that he can't really use his fretting hand all that well. And so he just shows the kid how to do some fingering exercises. And, of course, in the opening scene, um, dream sequence. Right. Yeah. Um, so, no, they, they actually, 
uh, they actually keep to that pretty well in Desperado. I would say better than in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, but it was, it's not like he's really doing any fancy fretting in Once Upon a Time in Mexico either. So I think they still kept that pretty believable. I'm not I'm not going to call foul on that. I'm not necessarily saying it's a it's a this isn't a declaration of inconsistency. I'm saying that as a character, his arc is the musician is gone for a little while, and all that's left is the killer. And I think there's there's a motivation to try to get back to the musician. A, a little bit, but in Desperado, the the real stated one is just that he feels like he's got one more person that he's got to go after, that he's got to take down, to really finally have complete revenge on everybody who wronged him. All right, let's let's dive full into Desperado then. Unless there's anything else that you have to say about Mariachi, because I feel like this is a good transition point, and I and I want to and I want to talk about where we meet him at the beginning of this film. So anything I left on? On to my favorite movies in the trilogy, especially that whole opening sequence with Steve Buscemi and Cheech Marin. Okay, I want I do want to spend some time talking about Steve Buscemi, who's awesome in this, by the way. But God, if you ever. He, here's the reason. Let's take a look at Antonio Banderas when he when we meet him in Desperado. Now, folks, just to be clear, Desperado is a is a revenge and redemption movie, as near as I can tell. He's motivated by the. Okay, so we we left off where he's killed one Mexican drug lord after shooting him in the hand and killing the woman he loves. Okay, so so he kind of takes that experience and he decides, you know what, all the drug lords have got to go. So it's implied that he's been out there just a murdering people uh, who who have done bad things to Mexico in the way of de- de- dealing drugs for a long time now. He's developed this sort of legend, and Steve Buscemi alludes to that in the opening monologue. <laughs> the boy does he ever. He was the biggest Mexican I've ever seen in my life. I have ever seen. <laughs> right. Um, he walks right in like he owns the place. <laughs> um, but... What you what you notice immediately, at least as far as I'm concerned, what you notice immediately about Antonio Banderas at the beginning of Desperado is he's driven by revenge, but it's a it's a reluctant revenge. You know, they the first time you see him that is not a dream sequence is he's in a rundown ratty hotel, and you know. They once said it about Eminem, oddly enough, that Eminem um, did a really great job in 8 Mile because he was one of the few people in modern cinema who can actually sit still in front of a camera and act. And that's one of the... And that's one of the things that I noticed at the beginning of Desperado is is there's a, is he's laying on the bed and he's not moving and there's no dialogue and there's a few beats in before uh, Steve Buscemi comes in to, talk, to, to kind of tell him about what happened in the opening sequence. And he's just lying there. And you can see, at least I picked up with if you watch carefully, there's conflict there. There's an internal conflict. There's, I must kill, but I don't want to kill. And later on, they even address that. Steve Buscemi says, what happens when it's all over? What happens when you finally get the last one, when you get uh, Bucho, El Bucho? And he says, well, I guess it's over. And, he, and it's about as you know, noncommittal as you can get in a sentence. So that's why I say it's, it's a movie about revenge and redemption. Because he meets another woman, and this becomes the, the, the new woman that he loves, and she kind of saves him from himself. You know, he gives him a new calling, which they address somewhat in uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And so, the yeah. very first time we see her, Salma Hayek literally stops traffic. <laughs> 
Well, I could do another two, three hours on how hot Selma Hayek is, but this is a film podcast, not a porno podcast. No, it's, you know what? Even the love scene in that movie, it's its not porn, but damn, it is so damn hot. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> so, are you? do you understand I, I, what I'm... I, I, I apologize, folks. This is going to be one of, one of the podcasts where you're just going to have to deal with me fanboying a little bit because, God, heaven, I love this movie. Do you follow what I'm saying, though, about the revenge and the redemption plotline? Now do you see where I'm getting at with, you know, the he's lost the musician inside of him and, this, and he sort of reclaims it later on? Well, 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 no. I, of course, I obviously understand that. I, I I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize for my unrepentant fanboyism. But no, I mean that, that that's a that's a very that's a very strong point to make, and that is the fact that that's why this is such a great three part saga is the fact that it's told through action. The the action. Has has uh, has a has a meaning. Um, what is that? Oh, what's the line from Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon? We must have emotional content. Yes, something yes. very much missing. Not to beat a dead horse about modern action movies, but something that's missing a lot of modern movies. So, okay, I've talked a little bit about. Um, what what the major plot line of this thing is the very the, the center plot actually the El Mariachi he's driven by revenge he's got one more drug dealer left to kill um, and there's a big reveal at the end of this movie but um, and then and, and and it's just kind of getting there and and, and that's what Desperado is awesome to visually it's awesome and acting wise it's awesome thinner plot than El Mariachi a weaker plot if you ask me. Um, not not complaining you can successfully do that if the acting is good and. Uh, and, you know the other elements are good. You don't necessarily have to have the strongest of plot lines, but that's but that's all it is. It's, it's kind of I'm going to kill the major Mexican drug lord. Shit happens. Shit happens. Shit happens, and that's kind of the whole thing. Um, but I want to go ahead and kind of shift over to you, Sean, and let you talk a little bit about some of these action sequences and what you know and how they told the story. Because I liked your analogy before about wrestling matches. Wrestling before we got what we got all into promos and and modern the kind of modern wrestling you see now, where everything is told through a backstage sketch. Uh, wrestling matches used to be told as stories in the ring, and these are this is and Desperado is a story told mostly through gunfights. So I'm going to shift over to you and kind of let you kind of talk about how. Uh, the movie effectively does that. Well, yeah, I mean, the major, the major ones that stick out in my mind in this are in the first one, the whole opening sequence, and it's in in both of the last two movies, you have an opening sequence that is setting up and making it clear that the mythic status of El Mariachi has risen to the point of embellishment. Um, but God, it is some juicy, entertaining embellishment. Um, in the case in the case of Desperado, it's because Buscemi is stretching the truth a little bit on purpose to see how much fear he can strike into these guys and kind of gauge their reactions. In Once Upon a Time in Mexico, it's because, as Cheech explains, oh well, the story grows over grows over time. It just is what it is. Um, but in the opening sequence, in the opening gunfight in the bar, 
we um, we kind of get an idea of what El Mariachi has become. Um, it's it's made very it's made very clear his character, and actually it turns out that it's not much of an embellishment when it comes to both his prowess and his demeanor. Um, the next time we see him in a gunfight, it's in uh, it's in the Tarasco bar when he's come, when he's come in looking for Bucho. And the whole fun part about that scene is number one, beautiful soundtrack to it. The the song that goes with it just plays so well with with the fast and furious action that ends up going on. But also, he doesn't just erupt spontaneously into a gunfight. Um, yeah, he doesn't little... kick open the door and just light the place up. You know, no. he says a few times throughout this thing, hey, I didn't want to kill all those people. They started it. And he says it in yeah. this scene, too. Where he's like, look, I'm not looking for trouble. I'm just looking for a man. Well, well right. And, and, that's, and that's the whole funny part of it. There's, there's, there's this little bit of this kind of cat and mouse, bit, cat and mouse dance. You know, there's this little kind of almost bug bunny thing that's kind of going on a little bit. Um, because they see the guitar case, they want to check the guitar case. Guitar case out, it looks like he's gotten one over on them. And then somebody accidentally taps just the wrong spot. And, you know, half a Republic of Congo arsenal is in there. <laughs> um it was the biggest <laughs> fucking hand cannon I'd ever seen. <laughs> okay, that was from the opening sequence, but God, I love that line. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know what it is, but it's the biggest fucking hand cannon I've ever seen. I was watching Once Upon a Time in Mexico on Saturday before the GSP fight. My father happened to my father was sitting watching with me, and he's kind of up and down, and he's watching. I think the opening. Um, the opening gunfight in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and he just kind of looks at me and goes, huh, nice wire work. And I'm <laughs> making a point of, of, of saying that because you can absolutely do silly, over-the-top violence as a style of a movie and make it work, but you have to have all the other elements backing it up. So right. if you want to have Antonio Banderas tear up, you know, be a Superman and tear apart an entire bar, you can do that as long as you're A, consistent, B, there's a point to it. If you're just fucking well, people hey, up to fuck people up, that's everything I said in the first half of this podcast. Let me add a point C from a filmmaking standpoint. The other thing you've got to consider is this, and this will always be my beef with latter-day action movies. Always. Um... You yes, you need to add a lot of a lot of special effects and wireworks and what and whatnot to make it look like someone like Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, or Leonardo DiCaprio is going to kick anybody's ass. Yeah. Um, I have always always I've always hated it when I've seen Leonardo DiCaprio cast in any kind of even remote tough guy role. Um. <laughs> Because that is not a guy that looks like he'd bust a grape in a fruit fight. Um, now, on the other hand, in this, Antonio actually did a lot of his own stunt work. That's one of the reasons why, when you see him doing all of this flopping around and everything, if you go back and watch the, I believe it's the 15-minute film school is what he calls it, um, why, as Robert points out, he actually did a lot of that. 
he actually did a lot a lot of the falls and everything. It, it has an authenticity to it. And and again, he's he he is the kind of guy that carries himself like you actually kind of get sucked into it and believe yeah, I actually believe this. I could really see this guy actually actually plausibly being it. He will do some of this stuff. You're just it, it makes you suspend your disbelief that well, um, and it, and it, it it is fun. It, it is a lot of a lot of high flying, over the top action, but somehow somehow just the way everything is carried off just still doesn't feel too far over the top. Um, it's. It's kind of just right, and there's also plenty of humor as humor as well. I mean, there's there's the the wonderful line, "I'm looking for a man who calls himself Ucho." That's all. But you had to do things the hard way. <laughs> um, I actually like the delivery when he says, "You missed me." You know, he gets kind of shot, and he just, just grazes his shoulder. You missed me. <laughs> yeah, that's so well, awesome. I, 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 and after that, you also get the sequence where each of the guys are each grabbing a gun, trying to get the last shot in on each other, and everyone they grab is empty. Well, that's what I was going to say. This isn't, like I said, this isn't just splatterhouse. This isn't just violence for the sake of violence, you know, where he just executes everybody. This work, this actually works like a wrestling match. It kind of, they you know, they do, they do this, they do this, they do this. They end in this final spot, and bang, we're done. You know, it, it actually goes someplace instead of just being, you know, a instead of just being random murder. Actually, you know, what I would compare it to is I would actually, yeah, I'd compare it to uh, to a Ric Flair match because you get the uh, you, you get the drama, you get the advancement of of the story, you get you get the character, you do eventually get your high spots, of course. But you also, at some point, will get Ric Flair stumbling three steps up away from the turnbuckle and then flopping on his face. <laughs> it, you, and, you know, the, the line's like, you missed me! And, um, and the bit with the empty guns and I'm looking for a man who calls himself Bucho. Yeah, that, that's your equivalent to the flare flop. <laughs> um, you you kind of get a little bit of everything. And as long as we're talking about gunfights, the one that everybody should remember from this movie. El Mariachi, Campa, and Kino. Oh, you want to go straight to talking about that? I'll get to the other ones. Because, uh, actually, the the one with Salma Hayek singing is quite beautiful. And, actually, that, that's a whole, other, a whole other story that I'll get to in a second. But, my God... That whole scene is four minutes and 14 seconds of pure, absolute, unadulterated, face-melting awesome. Completely ridiculous, by the way. It it rises to the level of James Bond insanity. (laughs) But... But you know, it's, I mean, let's. Let, I just want to describe this. If you if you've never seen this movie, it's three guys, two of which the weapons are the actual guitar cases. Okay, at least Antonio Banderas is running around with various weapons in the guitar case. They are essentially his briefcase full of full of doom. The other two guys, one's a fucking rocket launcher. Okay. <laughs> I just if he ever has to open that up and show it to anybody, well why do you have rockets in here? I don't understand. And then the other one's just a flamethrower. 
Oh, come on. I love it, though. God, it oh, wait, has I'm it. Sorry. Was it the flamethrower or was it the machine gun? I don't remember. I know one of them... I remember one of them, and I don't remember if it's Once Upon a Time in Mexico or this one, where one of them is dueling machine guns, and one of them is the flamethrower. No, this one has the machine gun, yeah. Okay, so it's the flamethrowers in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Oh, by, oh, by the way, um, I might add, uh, hmm, who plays one of the other one of the other co-mariachis? Why is Carlos Gallardo? Yes, he plays. I think it's a Kino or something like that. But I just I, so, so if everyone gets this, an army pulls up to this small town. This is actually one of my one of my only quibbles about this movie. There's a line early on where you know, at, at, just, just so people don't get lost, uh, Bucho is m- m- much like the first movie, um, very musical in the way that you know certain elements repeat themselves. Bucho is sending his henchmen and various henchmen and sometimes henchmen that aren't even his. Oh, God, poor Danny Trujillo. But um, <laughs> but he's sending henchman after henchman to to flesh out the uh, the mariachi and uh, and kill him. And the mariachi uh, is wounded, and then he's hidden by Selma Hayek, and they're still trying to find him. And there's a lot of tension inherent in the the search there, and it all kind of builds to this really epic action scene. But along the way, Selma Hayek, you know, is saying because now she's feeling the pressure of hiding him from the drug lord, El Bucho, um, why don't you call your friends? You've talked about them before. Why don't you call them? And, and he says, uh, if I call these guys, they will destroy the city. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's a quibble, but they weren't going to destroy the city with the two or three rockets they had and the machine guns. And even if and, and even if they, they could with those with those particular weapons... The, the way that they brought them in was they're standing just outside of town when Bucho's army shows up, and so you have what is, a, what is effectively GI Joe, circa 1984. An army runs out a handful of people with weapons, and the small band of people with weapons eliminates everybody. But come on, it was awesome. I'm not arguing with you. I just, I just want people to understand what it is we're watching here. This is pure right. fantasy. Well, 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 okay, sandwiched in between those, we have something else that is actually a, a real unique action scene among the ones I've seen. So, to give you some idea of where this is juxtaposed, we've just finished watching this sensual, poetic love scene between El Mariachi and Carolina, played by Salma Hayek, um, set to a Carlos Santana song. Just like, like a several minutes long Carlos Santana guitar solo um, that just simmers, and it is gorgeous. It it is abs- it, it is it really is. It, it, you don't think of Robert Rodriguez and think, man, that is a man who knows who knows how to film sex. I was gonna um, say, um, I would say it is the antithesis of the of the puppets having sex in American Team America. Fuck yeah. Well put, um, but then right, but then, but then right after that, um, we get um, we get a scene in which Bucho has learned by way of plot um, just where Carolina, with whom he's been smitten, um, and El Mariachi are located. Um, and so he sends, he once more sends a death squad after them. 
the scene we get after that, and um, I would add, Kedate Aki, the song that Salma Hayek sings in this, is available in its entirety on the soundtrack. If you don't have this soundtrack, for the love of God, get it. Um, it's actually one of the best soundtracks out there, as far as movies go. It's it, I don't own many CDs anymore, because what's the point? But this is one of the ones I hung on to. Yes. And, and she sings the song, just playing around with his guitar, and she sings it in this amorous, detached, breathy whisper that is absolutely enchanting. But the thing is, is all the while she's singing it just with her eyes closed, just lost to the world. And all the while, El Mariachi has stirred in bed, and he's seen the death squad sneaking around. And um, he has to he has to deftly grab his pistols and find a way to get them in his sights uh, while she's still got her eyes closed. She's still kind of oblivious to what's going on. Um... And it and it leads to a, a chase scene and a chase scene and a gunfight and even walking slowly away from an explosion, which is awesome but, by the way. Vis- visually, it's one of those things where it's you know it can be campy or awesome, and this one was awesome. It, it is one of the signature visuals of the movie, yes. But you know, uh, again, Robert tries to give each action scene that he does a certain degree of context, of lead-up, of build-up. And he does it so well every single time. There's just not a dull moment in this movie. And again, that is how you do it. That You have to give some kind of build-up rather than just exploding all of a sudden with a shootout like that. There has to be a setup to keep it a part of the story. Well, sure. You're speaking to something that is missing in a lot of action movies today, and that is tension. You know, we talked about you know, the Alfred Hitchcock uh, way of doing tension in the scene with reference to paranormal activity. Look, tension is something that works in every kind of genre for the most part, even comedy. Um, if, you, if you don't have tension in a scene, you don't, have a, you, you don't really give the audience a reason to watch this other than they're trapped in their seat for you know, however long the movie is. Also going to walk out of the theater. Um, so that's a really good example of there's peril. There, there's peril that, that is upon our heroes who now we're invested in. We're invested in these people. And Selma Hayek is singing, sitting there singing the song, and she's, and she's going to get killed in just a few moments unless they do something. And then, you know, and then they're on the run. And what also makes that work is, again, she's not a super crazy ninja pirate astronaut you know, uh, lion tamer. She she's a woman who owned a bookstore, and she mm-hmm. runs and she shoots and she acts like a woman who you know. Th- did you ever see *Romancing the Stone*? A long, long time ago, but too long ago to remember it. Okay, so um, or and God help me, I, it's not the best example of what I'm talking about, but *Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom*, where you had a uh, what the, whatever the woman's name was who had a man's name like Billy or something, but you know here it, it, she was the, she so, was the yeah. uh, what was that? Uh, in Temple of Doom, that would be Willie. Willie, right. That was close. But, you know, so you have a situation where, where they're, again, fish out of water. 
Um, Willie is, uh, is a singer, and you know she's thrust into the situation that she's not used to, and she acts like it. You know, she does some things that are that, that are heroic, but that's you know like despite herself. Selma Hayek, same thing. She doesn't all of a sudden start murdering people, you know, like a Navy SEAL. <laughs> you know, she's like running with high heels, and she's like, "Why am I doing this?" And you know, and then he's like, "Come on, jump!" And she's like, I, "I'm not even going to make that jump. What are you nuts?" You know. So, but she, but it doesn't then fall, go too far to where she's detestable either. You know, she isn't Vicky Guerrero in there where you're just like, oh, "I don't want to hear you talk anymore." You know, she's, she, you know, it's she, she's walks that fine line in between somebody who is clearly not an action hero, but is doing things that are heroic despite herself. And again, that 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 brings us along with it. That makes me want to root for her. Right, and um, yeah, God, thinking of William Temple of Doom. Thanks, Mark. I'm now going to need aspirin the size of a tennis ball. Like, get, I'm not saying Temple of get, Doom was a good movie. To get, to get Kate, whatever the frick her name is, shrieky whining out of my head. Andy, fuck you. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, at least I didn't bring up short round. <laughs> He's still there, Sean. I just, Are you I, now banging your head on the desk? No, I said, Nady only here because she humping director. <laughs> Thank you, Stewie. All right, let's move on. <laughs> so, so um, I want you to talk about the uh, two people in this movie who have who are awesome who who chew up the scenery and are awesome in their screen time and one of them is the bard and I want you to explain what the point of the other one was because as much as he's awesome in this movie I don't know what the point of his entire sequence was other than it just felt like like you know to set up another action scene or whatever but wait wait, just, wait, wait, wait. Are, are we still talking about Desperado or Once Upon a Time in Mexico No 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 we're still talking about Desperado So let's let's talk a little bit about Steve Buscemi and then Quentin Tarantino who I'm re- referring to Steve Buscemi is the bard of this thing you know he's there to kind of take us along and introduce us to this world reintroduce us to this world um he's the one that tell that uh, gets the action rolling in the beginning introducing us to um you know the killer that is the mariachi um, he, you know, he. We find out later that he's working with him. He's kind of the eyes and ears of things. He's also reluctant. He doesn't want to be essentially an accomplice to mass murder anymore. Uh, that sort of stuff. So, let's talk a little bit about your, you know your thoughts on Steve Buscemi, and then let's also talk about Quentin Tarantino's awesome but brief appearance in this movie. Um, when it comes to Steve, if you've never, yeah, I can't imagine anybody who's seen something that doesn't have him in it. Um, he just—he's so—he's so understated. He—he's one of those guys that he plays Steve Buscemi in every movie he's ever made, and yet Steve Buscemi can fit into any movie ever made. Steve Buscemi epitomizes acting with your eyes. You, you know what? Yeah, he, he does. To be perfectly honest, and this is going to be a big stretch here to a lot of people. Um. Supposing time got thrown out of joint, and supposing the Godfather trilogy got made today. Don't give Oliver Godfather, any ideas. In the Godfather Part 1 and 2, in my, if I'm directing it, Steve Buscemi plays Fredo. Sure. Yeah. 
That 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 would be absolutely perfect. I I think you could have probably wedged him into into Star Wars somewhere, and he would have been a character that that would have fit. He could have been a slimy informant or something on Tatooine. They could have made him Jar Jar Binks minus the talking rabbit uh, CGI. And it might have actually worked. I'm telling you, it would have. Do, do everything that Jar Jar does, I, I, Steve Buscemi does, but but he does it as Mr. Pink. Yeah, and he does it without he does it without being obnoxious. Well, that's my point. He can do everything yeah. that Jar Jar Binks did in that movie. He can and be a bumbling idiot. Right. He can accidentally <laughs> give the Emperor powers to create an army, but he doesn't have to be a giant moron rabbit about it. No. Uh, no, he he doesn't. I mean, and I haven't seen the incredible Burt Wonderstone yet, but I imagine he probably looks ju- looks just just fine. Just looks just right at home, right next to Steve Carell and Jim Carrey, just om nom nomming all over the scenery. Let's put it this way: first of all, Steve Buscemi is one hundred times the actor that Jim Carrey is. Easily, yeah. Um, what um, what do you think Steve Buscemi lends to this movie? I mean, if you're telling people, look, you know, you want to watch this movie for Selma Hayek's boobs and awesome gun violence and everything else, oh, and Steve Buscemi's in it. Well, why do I care about that? Well, why do what, you care about that? Is, is he's the harbinger of the twist that comes at that comes at the end, and in a way, he's trying to kind of be maybe not the angel necessarily on El Mariachi's shoulder, but at the very least, the voice of some kind of reason and caution. Um, because even at the beginning, he's the first one that starts to wonder. You know, he he even says that you know he doesn't argue with a lot of the things that he the things that he's done because those people had it coming. But now he's starting to wonder if it's going too far and if this is headed towards some kind of point of no return. Then he finds out something about Butro and he tells him this is one you're not going to want to see all the way through the end. Right. That, I didn't even pick up on that until you said it, oddly enough. I mean, I, you know, the the element of foreshadowing is sort of his role in this thing. He says a lot of the things that end up becoming true. Right. Well, he he's the guy that makes it so that we, we're kind of keeping our, our perception of El Mariachi in check in that, yes, he's a vengeful vigilante, but there's somebody here to point out, uh, hey, there's... What this guy's doing isn't necessarily entirely right. Um, he's it's not got to be Alfred of this thing. If Valdaniachi is Batman, he's Alfred. Yeah, yeah, he really is. Um, and he's very good in every scene that he's in. Um, yes. And those are and those are precious, precious few. Yeah, he's he's killed way too soon in this movie. Now he had a purpose. Like I said, he he's the bard, he he's the conscience, he's the Alfred, he's all of these things. Steve Buscemi has a purpose in everything that he does in this movie. What the fuck was Quentin Tarantino's point? Okay, let me set this up for people. Quentin Tarantino walks into a bar. Why the long face? And you know he's got he's got his sidekick with him. One of them checks out Quentin Tarantino. The other one doesn't check out, and so they shoot him in the face and right in the missing teeth. Okay, fine. Um, they then, you know, take Quentin Tarantino into a back, and I guess he's some sort of a bad guy, or uh, not B.A.D., but B.A.G., you know, or he's picking up a shipment of some sort. He's, he's involved in the drugs in some way. Uh, he's not, and he's sort of brought in as um, outside help, I guess. He's not part of the organization, which is the whole check-in, check-out bit. And 
the, this is always going to be memorable to me because I've used the description of the bathroom that is the hidden door in Desperado as what happens to a bathroom that I enter after I've eaten Taco Bell. So, bye appetite. <laughs> Yo, I just, just picture you pushing away your Starbucks, you know, cupcake or something. Well, well, no, actually, right now I am closing up the bag of butter rum popcorn that I was snacking on. You fucking killjoy. <laughs> someday, uh, someday, and, and I don't know if she's listening to this, probably not, but someday uh, I'll have to tell you the always make the seal story because that, that makes a certain girl who I also know, like, you know, who I refer to as my wife, who is not my real wife. Um, and she says she calls me wife. I call she. I call her wife. She calls me husband. She brought on my wedding night. She brought me a a, a uh, tray full of snacks because I said I was hungry. And I forever dubbed her my wife, even though she's married to somebody else. Doesn't matter. In any case, she I, likes movies. I, I, I know a woman I could probably refer to that way. And go figure. The moment that I try that I dare assume, ah, she's not listening to this. Yeah, go figure. This will be the first time she actually tunes into the show. Okay. So. Well, if my if my wife, hi Sarah. Um, she knows she knows the don't make a seal story, and someday I'll have to tell you that either during a podcast where it actually would mean something or not. In any case, I love the bathroom in Desperado. I've used it to tell many a story and many a joke. In any case, uh, they walk into this hidden passageway through this destroyed bathroom, this Taco Bell destroyed bathroom. <laughs> this podcast brought to you by Taco Bell, um, and. Uh, a gunfight erupts outside of it, and at that point they think Quentin Tarantino's in on the gag, and they shoot him in the face. Okay, fine. Sean, your explanation, other than um, because Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were sort of the hot commodities of that time, and that was the whole reason I saw Desperado in the first place, was I heard Quentin Tarantino was associated with it, and again, or for Quentin. So um, explain to me his purpose in this movie. What is that whole sequence about? Do you seriously gloss over everything that happened before the other guy got shot in the face because he didn't check out? He tells a joke. It's a funny joke. Any joke. He tells just about the greatest dick joke ever told. (laughs) Okay, and I'm asking you, what is the point? To boldly tell the greatest dick joke ever told. <laughs> I just get the feeling that, you know, Robert Rodriguez was shy on minutes. And we're like, okay, and, you know, he was shy on minutes. Quentin Tarantino was his buddy. We're like, let's just shoehorn you into this movie. It's the, again, it's kind of like the end sequence with the other two mariachis that is that, that is both awesome and retarded at the same time. It's a quibble, but not something I, that makes me hate the movie. But I don't understand. It's one of those, you know, square peg, round hole moments for me. I don't understand why it's in the movie other than uh, because Rodriguez said so. Mark? Man crazy has no point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not, we're not going to get into the big... Somewhere, our esteemed colleague, Robert Cooper, who I know is a longtime fan of Radio Dead Air and What the Fuck is Wrong with You, is listening to that. And somewhere, he has recognized that line because Nash has uttered it many, many times to Tara in the course of that segment because, he has, as he has explained several times, Woman Crazy has a plan. It has an objective. It has a defined trigger, at the very least. Man crazy happens because man crazy. 
Sometimes we just do stupid because stupid. Sometimes we dick joke because dick joke. Let me let me say this. There was a style of filmmaking that was popularized after Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction did a lot of it, and that was the uh, hipster kitsch monologue. There's tons of them in Pulp Fiction, and I feel like because it was hip in Pulp Fiction, and then uh, and then every movie started to do it for a little while, and this was around the same time that they threw in the Quentin Tarantino stuff because that was was. That was a popular element of filmmaking at the time. So, yes, while I'm willing to also go along with Man Crazy Has No Plan, um, I'm also assuming, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening in the way of we're buddies, you're popular, this is popular, let's throw it in the movie, and we'll link it to something so that we don't go too far off the rails, but it really has no place in the movie other than... Yeah, yeah. Said. Because, because Kevin Smith didn't build an entire franchise on that principle. <laughs> okay, fair point. I'm not arguing. Um, I'm not going to reveal the end, the big reveal at the end of Desperado. We've we've already revealed way too much about these movies if you haven't seen them. But um, there's a big reveal at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. A they've they, they already after. I mean, there's nowhere to go after the fucking army versus the mariachi scene. So the the end of the movie is a little bit under not I don't want underwhelming has a negative connotation. It's uh it it's more like it was more like the end of the movie was what was the the big battle at the you know at the at the edge of town and this was the epilogue. Because yeah. you don't really do much of anything with it. It's it kind of just happens and it fades to black and the next thing you know um, Catalina and Carolina and the Mariachi have you know have left. Uh, Bucho is dead. They've left, and they you know and uh, they ride off into the sunset together. Yeah, that you know time. I I don't know if at the end of Desperado I I wonder if maybe Robert had just kind of thought well okay that. That works, or if he even planned on Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, I I don't recall if he's ever actually said, oh, yeah, I had Once Upon a Time in Mexico in time in mind when I wrote The End of Desperado, and I always planned to do it, or if later maybe he had an idea or Columbia Pictures asked him to do asked him to do a, do a threequel. I, I don't know. But, Let me read uh, I mean, to you from the Wikipedia page for the Mexico Trilogy. Yes, the trilogy was originally, was originally conceived as a way for Rodriguez to make three movies for the Spanish-language home video market to hone his skills as a director. Quentin Tarantino, a friend of Rodriguez, is reported to have said to Rodriguez that El Mariachi and Desperado were the start of his Dollars Trilogy, the trilogy of Western films directed by Sergio Leone. Rodriguez agreed on this idea, and the resulting conclusion of the trilogy, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, has many similarities to, with its spaghetti Western counterpart. This is often the explanation and the reason behind the inclusion of much more screen time and story sent around different characters other than El Mariachi within Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Well, yeah, and that's a good comparison. And, and I, I never actually heard that Quentin told him that. But it makes sense because the Dollars trilogy... Yes, it is three movies all centered on the same man. But there are three movies that also all stand alone just fine. You can watch them totally separately, and they will make 
absolute sense. These are made the exact same way in that you need maybe a little bit of explanation to really... I don't think you do. Really I, I honestly don't think you do. If you've never seen, I didn't. I never. I didn't know El Mariachi existed when I saw Desperado. And well, Desperado right. begins with a little bit. It's kind of like Rocky, you know, the, the Rocky movies, where the beginning right. of the movie is a little bit of the end of the last one. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, it helps to maybe have a little bit of explanation. It's definitely more satisfying if you've seen El Mariachi. But you could certainly just watch any of them separately and just understand fine what's going on. Sure. Uh, but that's that, that's very good. That, that's uh, that's perfect. That's a perfect description of this. And that's a perfect place to segue right into the, the guns blazing finale. Let me talk a little bit about my hesitation. When you initially said we were going to do the Mexico trilogy, you know, and my thought was, El Mariachi, good. Desperado, awesome. Once upon a time in Mexico. Ugh. Now I've since come. A, I've since learned. I've gotten a new appreciation for Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I sat and watched it. My kid was asleep. I made my father stop talking to me, and I just focused on this plot line. And I only got lost a little bit this time. So this is why I made the joke about you know. Um, oh, so the FBI knew that Internal Affairs was setting them up. Not, I wasn't bored, which is the next line from Homer Simpson in that little bit of dialogue. But it 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 connotes the fact that. This has got so many plot twists and so many double crosses. At some point, it looks like somebody, you know, doing you know quadratic equations and just fucking them up. I mean, it just it's just a lot of slash marks on on the blackboard for me, and it, it loses me after a while. I, I, upon multiple viewings, it's gotten a little bit better for me because I, I can focus a little bit more. But that was my initial reaction to it when I first saw the movie. Was I don't understand what I'm watching here. This is not a good movie. My other quibble with this, and again, I've learned to kind of appreciate it, and it's something we've talked about offline. Boy, Johnny Depp. First of all, Johnny Depp says something in this movie that, that that still annoys me. I'm less annoyed by it now, but the first time I heard him, I almost was. It was one of those was like it just took me out of the movie because it was so ham-handed. There's a bit where he's walking along the street in Mexico. Now, the Johnny Depp plays a CIA uh, operative, and and he tells you this. He might as well have looked at the camera and said it. I'm just a CIA man, and, Mex- and I'm walking my beat. Mexico is my beat. Head desk. <laughs> it's just, you know, the, you can wink and nod to the camera only so much. And that, to me, was him walking into the camera. Uh, you know what? Again, though, if you're going to do a spot fest, do a fucking <laughs> spot fest. If you're going, if, if you're going, if you're going to chew scenery and you're going to really defy logic in the name of just having a fun kind of charismatic, kind of charismatic character, well, you might as well let Johnny Depp do it because there aren't too many who are going to do it better. Right, here's my problem with Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp gets a lot of credit for being this outstanding character actor. I'm not going to argue that he's a good character actor. What I am going to tell you is that Johnny Depp is Johnny Depp in every single movie, only it's Johnny Depp in a different costume with a different accent. But it's not like he brings a lot of anything new to any of these characters. I felt, you know, I, I, the joke to you that I made was this was Captain Jack Sparrow as a CIA agent. You know what the really funny thing is, though? You know what one movie I saw with Johnny Depp in it where I actually thought... 
God, this is horribly flat. This is terribly boring. What the hell is wrong with this? Is wrong with this movie? I thought it would be so much better than this. Public Enemies. And lo and behold, and lo, uh, it's basically Johnny Depp playing John Dillinger. And lo and behold, just trying to kind of play a, a regular guy or, or a fairly regular human being, even if a larger-than-life criminal figure, I was bored to tears. I, I really was, more so than I should have been in any movie that's starring a couple of heavyweight actors like Christian Bale and Johnny Depp. Um, my then fiance well, absolutely loved it, um, because, I mean, she would reliably soak her panties for Johnny Depp every time. Um, but it just, compared with everything else he's been in that I kind of liked him so much in, I just couldn't get that invested so, I'm going to make a bold statement here. The best thing that he's ever done in the, in, in the only movie that I've ever seen him actually act in where he wasn't doing Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow with, you know, with the same performance that he that, that, that is the Captain Jack Sparrow act, uh, character is Blow. Yeah. Is, it, it Blow. That's the only time I've ever seen him act in any way that resembles acting. Yeah, I could. Uh, I could really see your point there. I, I really could. Um, uh, because acting isn't just doing funny accents. I mean, if I start going, "Hey, how are you doing, buddy?" I'm not. That's not acting, okay? If I, a funny walk and lots of makeup isn't acting, you know, being able to tell a funny story, you know, or do do a monologue that ends in, "No, I'll shoot the cook. My car is already out back," which is an awesome line, mind you. But your ability oh, yeah. to deliver lines in, in kind of a hipster way isn't fucking acting. And sorry, I'm not a girl. Just because he's a handsome fella doesn't make him a good actor. I think he is good, but you know what? Like I said, he I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I'm not I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I think he gets way too much credit than he deserves. That I that I will give you. I, I have always maintained that one of these days if Johnny Depp ever develops tits and a vagina, Helena <laughs> Bond Carter is getting divorced so damn fast. <laughs> Or, um, oh God, I don't, I don't want to talk about anything Tim Burton that's, that Tim Burton has done with Johnny Depp. Yuck. But um, yeah, because we, yeah, because we still have a couple of certain Tim Burton franchises we got to get to yet. Yes, yes, we do. In two weeks, as a matter of fact. But just, just to finish up on Johnny Depp and move into, because we're going to run out of record uh, of um, live time, and we're going to move into the recorded part of this. So for those of you that are listening live, we're, we're going to. Uh, lose you in about three minutes, and then you yeah. have to go to the rule archives. One, is, rule number one, though, the overrun is always worth the download. Yes, especially especially if Blog Talk Radio doesn't cut us off mid-announcement. God damn right, better not cut me off this time. <laughs> hey man, I'm just glad we were able to get to the show tonight. I almost I almost shit can this entire show because of the stuff that was going on earlier. But I digress. So yeah, so I want to get this out of the way. And, and let me be clear, because if there's people that are listening to this who are just like, fuck you, you hate Johnny Depp. I don't hate Johnny Depp. I no. don't think he's a bad actor. I think he does a lot of the same performances, switching costumes and scenery. And that, to me, yeah. isn't acting. 
You know, when you can do one thing really, really well, that's fine, and people should pay you lots of money to do that one thing. But don't expect me to, you know, to shower you with praise for your great range. De Niro has range. Jim Carrey has none. Okay, so you wouldn't call what Lon Chaney Jr. did acting. You're going to have to use a better example than that. Well, okay, Lon Chaney, I'm, I may very well get the historic nickname wrong here, and for that I apologize. Um, he, he was Hollywood's man of a thousand faces. You know, he, he was able to do so much in, in, in so many movies with makeup and just changing his, and just changing up his mannerisms and changing up yeah, that's his, not acting. his voice to bring characters to life. Okay, and again, I'm sure he was a talented fella, and it certainly sounds that way, not what I would call acting. Again, your ability to – Antonio Banderas in all three in, – in, in the both of the movies that he was in acts, and acts quite well. Salma Hayek acts quite well. Steve Buscemi acts quite well. Jesus Christ, Johnny Depp plays Johnny Depp. <laughs> and just, you know what, though? But, but I disagree with you. I, I disagree with you so much. I, I will give you, I will to a certain extent kind of give you that when it comes to Jim Carrey, and that a lot of what he does involves physical comedy and being a little bit method, and it has tended to not necessarily translate very well when he's done dramatic roles, although I will maintain that I think he was robbed of an Oscar nomination, or maybe an Oscar win, the year he made Man in the Moon. I'll go you one better. Jim Carrey shows chops when he does dramas, and I'm willing to give him tons of credit for his dramatic acting. I thought I thought he was robbed of an Oscar for the Truman Show. You know, um, oh, the other one. Absolutely. The other one that he was in, um, um, God, the uh, the movie theater one. Ugh, the one where he is uh, amnesia. The Majestic. The Majestic. Again, another great example of a Jim Carrey drama where the man is at least acting. Obviously, Man on the Moon, which I'm in as an extra, by the way. Um, oh, was, really? you know, Yes, yes, I was. Um, so I sat right behind Courtney Love in the uh, Broadway, in the, um, oh, gosh, where does he do the Where does he do that show in New York City? It's like the Met or something. Was it Radio City Musical? Yeah, I'm in the Radio City Musical scene, um, and I actually got to talk to Jim Carrey for a little bit about uh, Andy Kaufman and wrestling and all that. But um, yeah, so I mean, his, his performance of Andy Kaufman was was outstanding. His comedies are shit, and he's a terrible actor in those. And in those, he's not acting; he's he's Daffy Duck. I like Daffy Duck. I'm not. <laughs> I like Daffy Duck too. But if you tell me that Daffy Duck is acting, we're gonna have to end the show. Well, well, okay, okay. I'll, I'll throw out another guy to you um, because you know I I do think that acting is a lot of it's very involved. A, a lot of acting does involve a lot of the stuff that you're kind of discounting here. Because I, I will throw another one out there for you. Uh, Doug Jones um, is a guy that a lot of people would probably not know if they saw him. Um, but, and you know, my memory, my memory of this stuff is so horrible. My, uh, my ex-fiance is the walking, talking IMDB. Um, she could rattle off everything he's ever been in. 
What I remember him most for is the fact that in the two Hellboy movies, he is the the physical actor who played Abe Sapiens, um, the 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 fishman. Um, now, a little trivia about the first movie: uh, David Hyde Pierce did the voice in it, but he refused to be credited for it because, as he said, he felt that it was Doug's physical performance behind the makeup and bringing him to life with the mannerisms that really made Abe a character. Um, Doug has I was going to say, I think uh, what you're describing is kind of like an Andy Circus. A little bit. Who so I think is yeah. a wonderful actor. Um, but again, you can do you can do character acting and really bring it to life. And I'll you know, and I'll give credit to someone like am I pronouncing his name right? Is it Andy Circus? Gollum. Yeah. Okay. See, to me, that's acting. Now, maybe I'm not giving you know, in, in your opinion, I'm not giving Johnny Depp a lot of credit, and that's that's fine. Um, you know, this disagreement is perfectly fine here, but I it just I've watched him in a lot of movies, and I, I just feel like people are. To me, it's a lot. It's a lot of magic. You know, it's it's a lot of misdirection. You know, it's Barney from um, How I Met Your Mother. You know, he distracts you with all of these, you know, wild and crazy things that he does, and and, and funny accents, and you know, and very very vi- bright and vivid costumes, and and I just feel like it's the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and in this movie in particular, just bring it back to Once Upon a Time in Mexico, I think they gave him a very juicy part, and. <sighs> you could just feed feel... a NASCAR audience with all the sacred cows of mine you're barbecuing here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, uh, if that, it, I want, I don't want to go as far as say it just felt like he was reading lines, but it just, it, it just, he just, everybody plays a character. Even fucking Eva Mendez was a character in this thing. William Dafoe was a character. These are people who I'm like, okay, these are people in the movie, and I'm totally with this, and they're all interacting with Johnny Depp. Could not buy him. I, I don't buy him in what he does. I don't buy him in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's Johnny Depp in drag. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to move this. I want to move the conversation forward. You know, you you you've heard me. You've disagreed. I'm okay with that. I let's just move it on. It's it's I, I I stand my ground here. This felt like a lot of great gritty characters and Johnny Depp delivering funny one-liners. And in that sense, you know what? I will agree with you. I think that the best performances in this movie go to Willem Dafoe, Mickey Rourke, and of course Antonio Banderas. Sure, Mickey Rourke is awesome in this movie. Oh, Mickey! Mickey is great in almost. Everything he has done since Sin City. Well, okay, okay. Well, actually, I stand correct because this was before Sin City, so I got to give that credit. Um, I mean, he's he's given really way too little credit, I think, for how good an actor he really is. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He doesn't do yeah, the same I, I think, in every movie. You know, I, I got to be honest. Um, I would dare say he he's kind of one of the uh, the Mark Hunts. <laughs> of, of Hollywood, um, he's somebody that kind of was given another chance, but not really given much of a chance by anybody. 
And lo and behold, in, in movie after movie that he's been in, he's he's kind of smacked it out of the park. And someday he will be heavyweight champion. Now listen, um, so let's let's pick up a little bit where where we find ourselves in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, as I indicated before, after reading a little bit of the Wikipedia page, uh, this movie this is the expanded universe movie. So what was started as a very intimate tale about a guy whose life is sort of thrust into um, into this other world, you know, where, where this world of violence, and he sort of had to adapt to it. We go bigger in this movie, uh, really, really big. This is this is this is one of the this was this was very close to almost becoming Mallrats. And what I mean by that is, you know, Kevin Smith made this very intimate, funny indie movie called Clerks, and then the studio said, "Hey, this was really popular and made oodles and oodles of money. Here's lots of here's lots more money. Go make another Clerks." And he made fucking Mallrats, which was terrible. <laughs> You know, this isn't that, but it, it could have been because it was another situation where it was like, okay, we had this guy who made an indie film. It was really, really good. We gave him a little bit more money. He made a better film. Let's give him tons of money and see what he comes up with. And it manages to stay slightly to the right of center, where it's bigger, it's it's broader. There's more characters. It's grandiose, and it doesn't completely go over the line into silly mall rat shit. Um. Oh God! I just had another example of this, where uh, uh, if I think of it, I'll burst in with it again later. But um, you, you see this a lot in other in, in other uh, trilog- trilogies, where you know it starts off small, and by the third one, it's just you know we're just humongous. So where we find ourselves. So Johnny Depp is a CIA agent, as he tells the audience, and um, we have a president. And they want the and he wants the president dead, and he's going to set up a situation where uh, there's going to be a military uh, coup d'état, but they don't want the guy running the military to be in charge either. Um, essentially, they want to leave the country in the hands of the Mexican mafia. The role of the mariachi in all of this is to make sure the general doesn't take power, and that's sort of the crux of the movie. Um, and then from there, everybody betrays everybody, and everyone dies. <laughs> it's fucking, you know, Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, that, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> that that really, it's almost not really worth trying to explain the plot. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a rousing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's a good plot. It's just that, and my gamer friends will get this, it's, it's a lot like trying to explain the plot of Metal Gear Solid to somebody, or trying, <laughs> or, or trying to explain how all the Resident Evil games are connected. It's just it's better that you just play them and try to understand, rather than actually sitting through somebody trying to explain them. Or in terms of wrestling, as I find, trying to explain to somebody who has just started watching it, because I have actually had to do this. Actually, trying to explain a feud's backstory to them. That would be um, almost impossible now in the WWE. You'd, you'd mind if, you, if someone asked you what's going on in wrestling now, just say "Man Crazy" has no has no plan. Especially if you were trying to explain the Undertaker and Kane to somebody. Oh God! Did you? 
first of all, I think someone tried that once. I think someone actually did a written piece of trying to explore. Like there was some sort of book that was written or planning to be written that explained the Undertaker and Kane story, which has yeah, so many but, double backs and, and and plot problems. It could have been written by the people that did Paranormal Activity. But yeah, the best you know thing what? It was it was published by WWE, and yes, it was basically meant to be a clarification of Kane's backstory. Yeah, and it flopped from what I understand. But the best oh, thing was Kane's monologue in the anger management se- uh, segments. That 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 book would turn people off reading. <laughs> and for some reason, I keep trying to torture Pete Rose year after year. <laughs> anyway, um, no, uh, but one of the one of the best things to explain about this is the fact that again, it's. It's Antonio Banderas taking a character that he didn't even play in the first movie and, and when transforming him again. Because now, here, he's just a man who has been beaten down by tragedy into essentially a shell of his former self. Well, that, that's what's interesting about this. The, the Mexico trilogy has a very, has a very um, song-oriented structure. It's a lot of verse-chorus-verse. Um, once you once you kind of get into the transition of musician to killer, um, you know we start in Desperado where he's you know out for vengeance and and by the end he's redeemed himself and he goes to live a happy life and 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 we start in Once Upon a Time in Mexico where he's lost everything again he lost everything at the end of El Mariachi uh, he got it back at the end of Desperado lost it at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in Mexico and it's you know, and it's, it's it's you use the word you know shell of himself. That's exactly you know in the in the second one at least he was driven by vengeance, but the third one he's just exhausted. Yeah, he you know? just looks and, and you know credit to Antonio. Every time you look at him in that movie, that's that's the perfect adjective actually. Antonio just looks broken. Mm-hmm. Look like he'd been dragged from a truck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great place to pick pick him up because the whole thing that the whole mission that Johnny Depp gives him kind of gives him a purpose. But he, he ends up not fulfilling the mission, and this is what I think is a is is one of the best elements of Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Something I did not give it credit for the first time I saw it, and in rewatching it, recognize it's yeah. the ultimate redemption tale. Suddenly, mm-hmm. this isn't even about him anymore. This is about he, you know. I, I can't remember who says it or, or how it goes, but like he is—he is one of you know. Who are you guys? We are sons of Mexico. Yep. This isn't about him anymore. This is about something bigger, and he gives of himself to re, to to uh, save the president and redeem the country. And I really love that final battle scene because it's a tale of you know the the Mexico that we all know and love, which is the you know coke ridden. Uh, kidnapping, g- gangster-ridden, murder, ha- murder happening, Mexico versus the rich tradition of culture and, and, and things that we really should love about Mexico in conflict. It's a country that is schizophrenic. It's tearing itself apart between the good elements of Mexico and the horrible. This is why no one goes here. Elements of Mexico, except mm-hmm. to Ocean Beach Resort. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, well said. It it really is. It's kind of a combination of a kind of love letter, requiem, and indictment. Um, yes. 
kind of all in kind of all in one. It's it's just it's an honest portrait. Um, it's honest, but it's not so honest in that you can tell that somebody is trying to you know make Crash or Hotel Rwanda or the Twenty Fifth Hour or or something else super serious like that. It's this isn't Schindler's List. Right, exactly. It's it's you know a, a definition of a country that's told amidst great shootouts, Johnny Depp eating Beal and shooting cooks. <laughs> Just a small credit to Johnny Depp, though. As much as I've complained about him for the last twenty minutes, he does deliver those lines quite well. Oh, God, I'm getting, I'm getting a text message. People, I told you, podcast. <laughs> this is why I put my daughter to bed before I do these podcasts, eh? <laughs> what, I, I, get, I get the feeling Mrs. Rodwich has got to not be very fond of me for the hours I make you keep doing this. No, no, she's fine with it. Um, she, As long as I do them after 9 o'clock when she wants to go to bed anyway, she doesn't really care. Ah, gotcha. If you if you tried to do this at six o'clock when we're trying to have dinner and I have to go wrestle my child, you know that would be a whole different story. But nobody cares about this. They want to hear us talks about Once Upon a Time in Mexico. So listen, um, <laughs> what did you think of as far as you know? We we talked about the uh, the the final scene in uh, Desperado with the mariachis and how they and how three guys with guitar cases full of you know ungodly weapons take out an army. Um, in this one. It's it's as they as Red Letter Media called it in the Phantom Menace. It's the the ending multiplication sequence. You've got you know multiple things going on that they keep cutting to, and one of those things they keep cutting to is a blind Johnny Depp in a duel with two Mexican henchmen. Now, did you like this? Did you think it added to the movie? Did it take you out of the movie? I'm curious to hear what your uh, impression of that was. I don't. It does seem a little out of place in that it doesn't really seem to have anything to do with anything except to give this character that's been around the entire movie a resolution um, and to give him maybe one last really fun thing to do. Um, is it an ode to something? Is this you know is this an element that's in other West spaghetti westerns or you know other movies? Is there? I mean, he specifically makes him completely blind. And they go through this whole Rambo-ish sequence where he's putting on his clothing and you know and getting his guns ready and then walks and and they just do this whole thing and it felt very stylized. It definitely felt like it was an ode to something, but I could but fuck me, I don't know what it was. Nothing that I can think of. Fantastic. Uh, I can't think of. Um, but I mean, it was amusing. I I didn't think to be honest with you. The Johnny Depp character wasn't really one in which I was all that invested. I I was entertained by him. He takes up a good uh, two thirds of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I I found him I found him amusing. Um, but but again, that that's about the most I can say about it is amusing, and that's the thing. That is the one thing about Johnny Depp that always kind of frustrates me is the fact that I can't think of a role he's played in which I've ever had a real investment in his character. <laughs> uh, 
I, I'm going to rename this podcast when I in the subheadline when I post this on 411. Uh, the, the Mexico Trilogy, in which we discuss all the ways Johnny Depp sucks. No, but but again, I'm I'm saying that I find him I find him entertaining in the movies that in the movies that I like. I I find him amusing, but there are other performers who are better at carrying off evoking that same fondness, but also giving me something in which I'm actually invested. So let's um, talk about some of those characters. We talked a little bit about um, the character that, um, the wrestler, we just said his name before. Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. We talked a little, let's, let's talk a little bit about him and William De, Willem Dafoe, who are more or less the villains in this thing. Well, Willem Dafoe definitely is the villain, but Mickey Rourke is a... Is part of the villain ensemble, but he, um, I don't know, I would say somewhat redeems himself towards the end. What I like about Mickey Rourke's character is that they gave him a little, they gave him a little plot line, they gave him a little arc, uh, in which he is so disgusted by what he's doing working for Willem Dafoe that yeah. he's okay with turning himself in and, and kind of being a snitch for the organization. I like, I like that element. Um, talk to me a little bit about your your impressions of Willem Dafoe in this and how he carried the movie as the villain. Willem, just the thing about him is any scene he's ever in, you can't take your eyes off of him. He's uh, he, he's eye catching in, in every single sense, and this one, he's he's he is playing this suave drug cartel leader. Um. And one that it seems like might actually really feel like, yeah, he with what he's doing, he's actually doing Mexico a favor, kind of, uh, kind of propping it up, so to speak. Um, as you know, there as you know, there there are some some people who push drugs who probably do, really do feel that feel that way, saying, well, hell, if you took away drug sales, what sales? What do you think would happen to the community around us? It it falter. This is kind of the biggest industry in this area. Um, but at the same time, it's it's kind of a little bit quieter charisma, I think, than obviously he, the what he just played in Spider Man. I was gonna say he's not hammy at all. You know, no, I didn't no. find him to be hammy or scenery chewing. I didn't find him to be you know Mr. Burns kind of a villain. He 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 was just he was the next evolution of drug cartel bad guys in this series. Uh, yeah, he he really was. He really was in the same way that in the same way that Bucho was kind of. Um, he kind of drew it back from Bucho being very much a stereotypical '90s action movie bad guy. Um, <laughs> so I'm laughing because I'm I'm thinking about like at least you know Willem Dafoe is said to be so maniacal and so evil that that uh, what's his face doesn't even want, Mickey Rourke doesn't want to work for him anymore. Meanwhile, Bucho was actually shooting his own henchmen. Which is one of the funnier bits of the movie. Well, well, well yeah, that's uh, that's true. But that's kind of what I like about Defoe, though, is the fact that there's maybe that little bit of air of of mystery, a little bit with Rourke hinting at that, but with Defoe making make it all the more unsettling because he doesn't really display those tendencies. So it's not something that that a lot of people would maybe see coming. Right. I think the only time what, you really uh, see it, to my recollection, was the bit with the piano player. Right, exactly. But it's the fact that he that he is so nonchalant about it. He 
he doesn't exactly go into the kind of like like you hinted at the, the kind of the kind of screaming shoot the henchman rage that Bucho does. <laughs> hey, he just he, uh, he, he, I don't recognize you. Bang! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's it's like you know he does he does the he does the kind of these kinds of things the way I eat a handful of almonds. Is that that's kind of the impression that it the impression that I get that it's just right. It's not, I was going to say Butcher was very much Darth Vader from The Empire Strikes Back, just killing everybody and you know driven by the single purpose of catch the mariachi and to the point you know, to 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 the uh, disregard of all else. Well, Willem Dafoe doesn't really do that. No, 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 not not, not at all. And and I like that. It was it, you know I thought his and Mickey's performances were. Were understated, but they kind of hit that. It's that just right bowl of porridge. You know, if if, if Ava Mendez is too cold and um, Johnny Depp is too is too hot, okay, this is lukewarm. This is just right. Om nom nom. So, okay, um, let's close it out here. This is probably, as I said at the top of this, the best example of a perfect trilogy. I think that we, we can agree on. It. Uh, you had asked online, did did they go too far with Once Upon a Time in Mexico? I think they came close. It certainly has its, it certainly has its problems, its quibbles, but ultimately Robert Rodriguez ended the series right where it needed to end. If, if Hollywood gets it into their head that they either need to reboot this or do another one of these... Um, I'm not going to the movies anymore. <laughs> Please, for the love of Hollywood, you've ruined so much. I mean, really, Battleship the movie, did we really need that? But I, I you know, I, I have to now, I have to now put up with uh, Josh Whedon ruining, mar, ruining comic book movies, Star Trek and Star Wars. I'm okay with this. I've learned to appreciate schlock, even schlock dressed up as things I used to like. Please don't ruin the Mexico trilogy. It's fine just the way it is. Your last word, sir. You know, again, really, these are great movies to see because they're made by a guy who just loves these kinds of movies, who never forgot that love that he had of them growing up. And the thing is, is he also never lost sight of the fact that you can have action, but also have action that tells a story that that gives you some investment. They are pretty much to the line, absolutely perfectly cast. But more than anything else, they're just flat out fun. Um, El Mariachi might be a bit of a challenge for people who don't like subtitles, because it is entirely in Spanish. Um, if you um, don't like subtitles, then you're not going to like these movies, because these are actual movies. And I would direct you to Movie 43 instead. Right, right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, was, but, that, was that too obnoxious? Nah, not at all. Good. Um, but you know, I I cannot recommend these high enough. Um, if I had to p- honestly pick a set of my favorite movies, the first ones that always come to mind when somebody asks that question, um, and I have to sometimes fudge this a little bit by yeah, just naming a series, is I will tell people. Kevin Smith's Jersey, Jersey Anthology, The Blues Brothers, Shawshank Redemption is my all-time favorite, always will be, and The Mexico Trilogy. 
because those are the ones where I could just watch them almost nonstop and never really get sick of any of them. Could not make my wife watch Desperado or El Mariachi. She was like, I don't like violence. I don't like, I don't like violent movies. You know? And I'm like, first of all, you've seen violent movies with me. But I was like, really? These are, such a, these are great films. You know, these aren't just movies. These are films. These are, you know, I'll go back to what I said at the top of this podcast. This is screenwriting 101 all the way through, even with the plot twists and sort of weird things that happened in one time in Mexico. At least it's a solid script. You know, just because my simple brain couldn't follow it doesn't mean it was badly written um, for what it was. I mean, it's not Hamlet, but, you know, very you little know, is. You, you do realize we are eventually going to have to do the Jersey Anthology, right? Uh, it was something I was going to talk to you about, absolutely. Though, I've, I've ha- though all right, let's, let's, let's sort of transition to what's, what's in the future. A couple of things that we pitched out, and again, look – what separates me from some of the other people that write on 411 is I don't feel the need to bury the other writers, even if I don't like them. Um, so I'm going to say this, uh, and I'm going to restrain myself from some of the real emotion I feel about it. I got into a, dis- a lively debate with another writer on the 411 site because I happened to be killing time before the GSP Nick Diaz fight, and I watched the Hulk pilot, uh, the old uh, 70s Bill Bixby Hulk, which was a, a feature-length movie. It was just ma- made for television. And I said, this holds up against the other other two Hulk movies, and it's an example of how to handle the Hulk correctly, as opposed to the impression that Josh Whedon has that the Hulk is tricky and therefore not somebody that he's you know, motivated to do another movie about. Um, this sparked an entire debate over the English language, apparently, over what schlock is, what tricky means, and you know, just because lots of people paid money to go see a movie doesn't necessarily make it good, and in some people's opinion it does. But what I would like to do at a, uh, some point in the future is actually compare the three Hulk movies, um, the pilot, Hulk, and the Incredible Hulk. So that's on the docket in the far future. Uh, my brother-in-law's uh, fiancé, sorry, yeah, my brother-in-law's fiancé, uh, I guess my sister-in-law, hey, how about that, um, <laughs> suggested as a horror franchise. And I watched the first one as a kid. I don't ever think, I don't think I ever saw the second or the third one. Sure. But at some point, I want to I want to do because I don't want to dismiss horror altogether. I eventually want to do the Scream movies because those I can handle. Um, oh hell yeah! But I also want to do Poltergeist. Really? Yes, I can handle Poltergeist. At least I at least I remember being being able to watch the first one without being you know scared uh, to death. And I remember it being a really really interesting movie. So I'm I'm willing to do the Poltergeist trilogy at some point. Huh. Well, I I would be intrigued by that. I mean, we got a lot of movies in front of that, but I'm definitely going to keep that one in mind. I honestly, Poltergeist, it kind of slipped my mind a little bit. Yeah, mine too. Until she mentioned it to me, you know, my 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 my, my challenge to her was, hey, Christina, give me some horror franchises that com- that that are comparative comparative to uh, Paranormal Activity in that they're not gross and they're not people being mutilated. And she's like, oh boy, that limits the list, doesn't it? And then she reminded me of Poltergeist. Uh, yeah. So here's the here, here's the schedule for the next couple of weeks. Um, just the long road to ruin schedule. We can do other stuff in just a, in a little bit after that. But in two weeks, yep. April second, speaking of Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, we will be doing the first half of the Batman series that were split between uh, Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher, or as I like to call them, the Yuck Years. Um, <laughs> 
So April 2nd, uh, we will be joined by uh, Man Cave MMA analyst Samer Khadi and co-author of Occupy the Throne. I'm going to borrow him away from Jeremy for a few weeks. And we are going to do, uh, on April 2nd, the Tim Burton years Batman. So Batman and uh, Batman again. (laughs) Batman. Thank you. Batman Returns. Uh, On April 16th, two weeks later, we'll do the yuck years. Uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. And then uh, April 30th, we will actually again revisit uh, the Westerns as we do. And I've never seen any of these before, so this will be an interesting experience. Uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, yes. the Dollars Trilogy. And that'll that'll get us all the way through April. Yep. Uh, my My little one-year Arizona anniversary gift. Fantastic. Uh, in addition to that, over the summer, we are definitely going to start tackling some of the uh, the action and um, superhero franchises that we've been putting off uh, to do some of this other stuff. Eventually, we have to finish Rocky. <laughs> Make some time for that at some point. It's looming over me. I have not forgotten that I got two movies yet to watch. So, um, so we got that going on. So that's it. That's a long road to ruin, folks. That's what we got going on. Batman, um, uh, Tim Burton, Batman, Joel Schumacher, and then uh, the Dallas Trilogy. And then, uh, you know, towards the end of April, we'll start talking about what we're going to do in May. Um, Music podcasts, uh, next, a week from today, a week from Tuesday, uh, March 26th, is the Clutch Career Retrospective. And then on the 9th, we'll do the review of Earth Rocker, which is awesome, by the way. Absolutely fan-freaking-tastic. Um, and then April 23rd, uh, it'll be whatever Robert's choice is. I can't remember what we came up with. Um, I think we're doing, um, I think we're either doing Corpaclani or, uh, Spiritual Beggars. I have to, <laughs> have to look at my list again. Of course, every Sunday night is the MMA, uh, Ground and Pound show with myself, Mr. Jeff Harris, Patrick Mullen, and Robert Cooper, uh, where we talk about, um, MMA shows, whatever's in the news, good old Fallon Fox, you name it, we talk about it, so... <laughs> Um, uh, you can also like, you can also catch me in uh, the Factor Fiction March Madness. I beat that tushy. I beat Robert Winfrey. I don't care what Jeff, Har- Jeff Harris says. I beat him, and the, and the voters uh, voted for me. So I move on to the second round. We're doing the East Conference this week, though. So what, check that why out. Am start, why am I starting to feel like we're the Shawn Michaels and Triple H to Jeff Harris's Bret Hart at this point? <laughs> you know what, though? It, much like Bret Hart, he brought this on himself. Point taken. <laughs> Um, and uh, that's it. I got. Uh, I'm not doing Bellator coverage this week because it's my father's birthday, so I'm taking him out. But I am covering Saturday night World Series of Fighting two on the NBC Sports Network. And uh, April sixth, I'll be covering um, UFC Sweden. Like he is from Sweden. I like meatballs. So that's <laughs> it. That's what I'm doing. Sean, what do you got going on in your world? Oh, folks, you know, it's that time that time of every two weeks when I like to say never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Uh, but also a little added advice. Um, lend yourself to others, but give yourself to yourself. Um, before I kind of get into this, I want to kind of, um, I, I hope she's, I hope if she does, that she's not going to think this is too personal. Um, I just kind of want to continue sending my thoughts out to my friend Allison, um, from over on that guy with the glasses. 
Um, she's uh, it's good to see her getting back to releasing some videos and putting some out there. Um, she's going through a bit of uh, some kind of rough things behind behind the scenes and behind the scenes, and I uh, had to take a couple of weeks off there. And you know, just never forget if you do hear this that uh, you got a huge, huge fan base that really loves you, really appreciates what you do, and hope that everything really turns out for the best. Um, but in the meantime, more on to what we, what I have got going on. Uh, the announcement that I never got to finish last week. In May, in addition to everything to what we're doing in April, we're going to have another guest host, one that I'm very proud to have on the show. He is a published author, newspaper columnist, um, paranormal columnist, um, former mayor of Fork, Missouri, former bartender, um, great friend of mine, writing mentor, and just an all-around this example, a benchmark of what uh, of what geekdom and adult years should be. Jason Offit um, has agreed to join us to co-host our look at the Alien Quadrilogy. Uh, that is, we're going to be looking at Alien, a- Alien, and Aliens uh, on March, uh, I believe, no, May 14th. And then on May 28th, uh, we are going to be doing Alien 3 and Alien Res- and Alien Resurrection. Um, looking tremendously for- forward to that and very gracious. Oh, and I might add that we're also talking about two weeks after we finish Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, doing the AVP movies, just to kind of close out everything and put a nice little bow on it. Well, Predator before that. We need to do the Predator series. So we've got Predator, Predator 2, and then probably uh, Robert Rodriguez's Predators if we want to include that. I wonder if we could get Jason in for all of those. I'll have to ask him. Um, (laughs) I don't don't know if he'd have too big a problem with it. But um, anyway, uh, really tremendously excited about that one. Um, As I said, it's going to be a real trip for me having one of my very, very good friends on, on here just talking about movies and shooting the shit. Um, Otherwise... Uh, you can catch me every Sunday night in the ringmaster of Music's Three R's. Um, tune in just to see what some combination of Taylor Swift and Lil Wayne have done this week to piss me off. Um, uh, in Wayne's case, it might have been just that he maybe he maybe took one shot of codeine less than he should have. Um, but. Oh, oh, lest I forget, um, it's my pleasure to announce, to finally formally announce this. Long Road to Ruin now has got a Facebook fan page. Yes, just simply go to Facebook under Search People and Things, type in Long Road to Ruin, and look for the Porn Stashed Dave Grohl, and that is going to be us. Mark and I kind of share responsibilities for posting things things on the site. You never know which of us it's going to be. Uh, tune in there for updates on, upcom- on upcoming installments, uh, reminders of when shows are going to go, are going to go live, uh, the occasional poll questions or news updates from 411 Mania, um, including the admission that at some point, yeah, we're going to have to get around to the Resident Evil series. <laughs> You, oh, you thought you thought I said fuck a lot when we did Paranormal Activity. 
Um, but uh, in the meantime, I've got some other personal things that are going to be cooking soon, but I want to wait until April 16th when those really got off, get off the ground. I have got one, possibly two charity fundraising efforts that are going to be kicking off that day. But for the time being, uh, in the meantime, keep your stick on the ice, kids. Uh, I want to also remind people now, I mean, part of this is that we do this for 401mania.com and the Movie Zone where you can find our other podcasts, Paranormal Activities, Spider-Man, Return of the Jedi vs. Revenge of the Sith, all of our previous Long Road to Ruben podcasts. But if you don't want to go to 401 Mania because you don't want to be inundated with ads, you can just go to iTunes. If you go to iTunes and you type in uh, Mark Rattledge or or any one of the subjects that we've done, Long Road to Ruin, etc., you'll come straight to the uh, Rattledge in Broadcasting Network, uh, my little jibe there at uh, Rush Limbaugh. and you'll get all my podcasts. You'll get the you'll get the four one one show. You'll get the music podcast. You'll get Long Road to Ruin. You can leave them all. You can rate the show. You can leave comments, folks. I encourage you to leave comments. Whether you leave them on the actual Blog Talk Radio page, whether you go to iTunes, you download the show, you rate the show, give us four stars, three stars, five stars, negative ten stars. I like the feedback. Um, you can leave comments there. If you do catch us. On the 401 movie page, again, uh, you can leave comments there, too. I read this stuff, folks. Some people don't read the comments for the stuff they put up on 401. They just kind of put it up, and then, you know, that's their bit forgotten country for that week. I am not one of those people. Um, I, I, check about, I check them about once a day, and I and I tend to reply to the comments. In fact, uh, whether you, as long as you're not being terribly personally offensive, I will usually uh, even, start, even start off or end it, one or the other, often both, just by saying, "Hey, thanks for clicking." No, absolutely. You know, if you have a, you know, if you're one of these people who listen to this podcast and is like, "Hey, fuck you, Rattlech, Johnny Depp is God." Great. You know, let me know, and then that's fine. And I'm, I'm, you know, if you've got criticism, I'm more, more than willing to entertain it. You know, um, we're we are hobbyists here, and I'm always looking to try to get better and look for constructive feedback. So, you know, leave it. Now, if you just want to call me a douchebag, well, it's a free country. I can't stop you, but don't expect me to respond. So, well, and, and, and that's, well, and that's another thing regarding the Facebook page. Uh, regarding the Facebook page, I've only really got one rule about it. Um, and, Mark, you may enforce this as you as you like, but the one rule is don't be a dick. <laughs> I would like to extend it to my own personal Facebook page, know, but there's just some what? people you can't contain. And you know what? 411 comment section, I give no fucks what you want to say about this. I check the back. We are all out of fucks to give. No rain checks given either. Um, if you come on the Facebook page, if you like us, and you decide you want to start getting abusive, Mjolnir the Banhammer is coming down squarely on your knot. Not going to put up with it. Our page is not going to become the Spoonie Experiment. Not going to become that guy with the glasses. Not going to become Reviewtopia. Not going to not going to become Lord Cat's page, not like a lot of the other abusive geekdom sites that I... Well, there's no need for it. And I I don't want to get off on a a whole tangent here, because I do want to wrap the show. Um, I've got lots of UFC and New Girl to watch tonight, and and the debut of uh, Hell's Kitchen. So I do want to get on with this. But all Uh, before bedtime. I realize something, though, Mark. 
Your name, Roblich and Broadcasting Network, you pretty much just admitted that, yes, the idea that we actually have any actual talent or ambition of what we're doing is an entire rib. Okay. Nothing. Not even a giggle. The rib <laughs> network. Ah. Ah. <laughs> God, a little slow. Sorry. Vegetarian diet this week. I'm, uh, you know, trying. <laughs> a little sleepy on the uptake there. Ha ha. I see what you did there. Bang, bang. <laughs> In any okay. case. Yeah. Um, kind of bounced off the backboard on that one, didn't I? Uh, look, no, just to kind of clean up what Sean was saying, yeah, I, I'm all into constructive feedback, um, negative or positive. You know, it's all about, you know, interacting with people and trying to be better. But, I mean, if you're just going to be an obnoxious troll, um, and I would say that to the people that I work with on the floor one side, if you're just going to be obnoxious and be an attack, um, I I have a toddler. I know how to I know how to ignore you. I, I'm a, I'm a very skilled at ignoring uh, things that I, I, there's no use in responding to. And so if I can ignore the, the the fruit of my loins, my baby girl who is acting inappropriately, and the only way to uh, to deal with this is sort of a, you know um, active ignoring is what it's called. Well, you know they're doing it, but you're you're not feeding into the negativity and therefore encouraging more of it. That is exactly how you will be treated, like my toddler. I also do this with the jail inmates. I'm very skilled at this sort of thing. So you're not going to – you ain't going to press my buttons too much. Um, I, yeah. I just assume turn the page and move on. Yeah, about that. On the other hand, if you create a Facebook account called Caps Lock Man – and start living your gimmick on my Facebook page that I made, I'm not only going to run you over, I'm going to kick it into reverse and back over you again just to be sure. And that's why we make such a great team, folks, because while, you know, while I'm sort of the, uh, the the lighter hand here, this guy over here, he drops the hammer, and that's fine. That's our roles. Hey, that, make, hey, that does make me the Triple H of this bunch. It really does. Sweet chin music, baby. <laughs> That I've never been compared to Shawn Michaels before, and I don't like the look of things now. Now, listen, this has been an outstanding episode of The Long Road to Ruin. You can follow uh, Sean on Twitter at uh, at Sean Reg, S-E-A-N-R-E-G. No, no, no. My uh, my Twitter account is uh, is locked because it's strictly for 411 purposes. However, okay. um, if you want to go follow at Canvas Content, um, that is going to be more active very soon once I launch my uh, – fully properly launch my web content business. Um, but I do want to say this, too. I just want to thank everybody that listened, as I didn't get a chance to last week, because as Mark told me before last week's show, uh, we've been apparently gaining downloads with every single episode to the point to where I don't know what the numbers were for the Star Wars episode. But We're hovering around 800. Right around 800? Well, it's still not bad, because you told me that the second Paranormal Activity episode we got 857 downloads. Um, so we're we're pushing that four-figure mark. And really, I'm, I'm flattered. This, this little concept that Mark and I came up with seems to kind of have more legs than we thought it did. So yeah. thank you. All I'm always proud. appreciative. I mean, whether you love me or hate me, I'm glad that you're listening. You know, what, you know I, uh, tree, the tree doesn't make a sound if there's no one there to hear it when it falls in the forest. I feel like I mangled that. But, uh, no, I, I'm really appreciative of it. And, like I said, you don't have to think I, I'm the greatest thing since Michael Savage. At least I hope not. Um, but, 
<laughs> yeah. But I do appreciate uh listening good you know, positive, negative or indifferent. So that said, um this has been the long road to ruin. Um thank you for joining us in our look back at the Mexico trilogy. Come back in two weeks when we start in with Sam Mercati and uh the Batman series of movies, the good, the bad and the why Arnold Schwarzenegger, why? Uh <laughs> Until then, be well, be safe, and check out how this show should have started. Soy un hombre muy honrado que me gusta lo mejor. A mujeres no me falta ni el dinero ni el amor. Fineteando en mi caballo por la sierra yo me voy. Las estrellas y la luna ellas me dicen dónde voy. Ay, 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 mi amor. Ay, mi morena de mi corazón. Me gusta tocar guitarra, me gusta cantar el son. Mariachi me acompaña cuando canto mi canción. Me gusta tomar mis copas, aguardiente es lo mejor. También el tequila blanco con su sal le da sabor. Ay, 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 mi amor. Ay, mi morena de mi corazón. tocar guitarra, me gusta cantar el sol, el mariachi me acompaña cuando canto mi canción, me gusta tomar mis copas, aguardiente es lo mejor, también el tequila blanco con su sal le da sabor, ay, 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 mi amor, ay, mi morena de mi corazón, ay, 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 mi amor, ay, mi morena de mi corazón. Ha, 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 ha.